0: So we're going to be in Revelation 4 and 5, um, which nearly all the scriptures have been read this morning, so hopefully we're well integrated into the scene. We've sung the section. We've had it in the scripture reading. Jim's uh, talked about Revelation 5 for us. Um, So I believe that will be very, very helpful uh, for the nature of the scene. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the endurance of the prophets lately. Um, Just in my personal reading, I've been reading about the prophets I've been thinking about James chapter five, where it talks about how the prophets are an example of suffering and patience. And in my view, just with um, where the church here locally is at, uh, there's just a great need for uh, endurance and seeing those examples. And so I've just been thinking deeply about those things and pondering what is it that gave the prophets the kind of joy that they had in God. The kind of motivation where they were able to endure really unthinkable circumstances, uh, difficulties that are nearly unimaginable in their commitment to God. People like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, where the things that they had to endure in serving God, again, are difficult to even imagine. And yet they thrived. Uh, they thrived. They grew. They are great examples for us now. Um, and something that I've landed on is the prophets kept in mind who God is and the glory of who he is. And at times we're also given visions of the glory of God that I believe were meant to motivate and impact them so that they would be anchored to have that kind of endurance. Just consider some scenes where God shows his glory that I think were meant to have a very specific impact on God's people. Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, where the glory of God descended on the mountain, very visual, very auditory. Just the impact of that scene was meant to do something very specific to the people of God. So they had a better grasp of who it was that they were really serving. And then with the prophets, think about Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees a vision of God exalted on a throne within the temple with beings similar to what we see in Revelation 4 who are proclaiming holy, holy, holy as well. And that that impacted Isaiah, that, that motivated Isaiah. And then if you remember uh, last month when Paul Kelsey uh, was supposed to read Ezekiel 16 but read Ezekiel 1, of that very unusual scene of God exalted on the throne, which is very helpful now that he read that because hopefully for some of you, you remember that very unusual scene where similar to Isaiah, Ezekiel sees God on this may sound weird, a transportable throne where there are these cherub, cherubim beings, these angel beings who are four of them surrounding this throne that is exalted. It's shining. It's glorious. Again, it's very impactful. Ezekiel falls down like a dead man in front of this great scene he's presented with. And again, Ezekiel uh, lived very during very difficult times. So these these are scenes that When the prophets were confronted with them, it would have impacted their sense of commitment, their understanding of God, their jealousy for God. Uh, Now, all of these scenes, though, were temporary. Sinai was a scene that did not last forever. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, the temple did not last forever. Ezekiel chapter 1, that transportable throne was, again, kind of a, a temporary kind of thing. But in Revelation 4 and 5, it seems like the nature of this vision has permanence, that the principle of what's happening in Revelation 4 and 5 is seemingly, in some of its nature, very literal and also unending. So again, there's, there's things about this scene that I do think have a symbolic nature to them. Um, And so despite that, I do think there's a very literal nature to what is happening to the figures within the scene. Revelation is a book where it's easy to get kind of carried away with what does this mean? What does that mean? What is this symbolizing? But I want to encourage you, hopefully in this lesson, that sometimes the greatest lessons can be learned from taking the most simple perspective. (laughs) And I hope that this lesson will kind of help with that, that things will be looked at very simply. We certainly won't dig too deeply into what certain aspects of the scenes mean will be trying to be very simple, but hopefully that simplicity will be very impactful. I want to encourage you as well to take it all in. So if I could go into your brain and like turn on all the switches of your imagination, you know, turning on kind of your auditory part of your imagination, your visual part of your imagination, your sense of scale and enormity in your imagination. Uh, we just really need to take this scene in. Uh, and by the way, hopefully John is in the back taking care of this weird like, Loud sound that just went away just now as I said that. Nope, there it is again. Hopefully that will get taken care of. That's not something normal that, that happens here. Um, but suffice it to say, we just need to take it in, just, just try to stand in John's shoes, try to see what's happening, hear what's happening. Uh, again, these, these are things that are all very vividly portrayed. I want to say a word to Miguel. Uh, he's a visitor here who does not speak English. And so, as you can see on the board, I try to have some Spanish things on the board, but I also try to introduce the lesson in Spanish as well. So, Miguel. Vamos a estudiar los capítulos cuatro y cinco del Apocalipsis. Estos capítulos retratan una escena en el cielo donde Dios, en representado en su trono, siendo el uh, el alabado por todos los seres que lo radian. Luego Jesús entra en es, es esquina en el capítulo cinco y One más alabanzas brotan de toda la creación. Vamos a considerar los puntos que podemos aprender de esta es esquina. That takes us to chapter four. We're going to just do these two chapters, and again, just try to visualize what's happening. And again, I would encourage you to really soak it in, and then we're at the end of kind of talking through the scenes. We'll think about some just very simple points of application we can take from these scenes. Uh, But again, the point of the lesson is, how does it embolden us, encourage us, motivate us when we see a picture of the glory of God, especially here? So Revelation 4, I'm going to read the chapter again. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first sound which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, which time out. Those are stones that have a very red kind of orange glow, like a very deep glow. So this would have been kind of like a reddish, orangish kind of color that he's seeing. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance, and that would be kind of a greenish color. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, uh, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come." And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall, will fall, and uh, will fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and will worship Him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "Worthy are You." our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. So John, you know, he mentions he was immediately in the spirit when this invitation is said, come up here. Um, so whatever form this took, somehow he's, he's in this scene in heaven and what does he see? So the first thing that's pointed out in verse three or verse two and three is a throne standing in heaven. Now, obviously, he's surrounded by these beings and praise is being given to him. But I want to emphasize that God's throne is the center and the focus of everything in this scene. And the throne is mentioned more than the one sitting on it, which I want to make just a point of emphasis on that really quick. God's throne is mentioned 11 times in 11 verses. I think the New King James translation inserts one more. So in the New King James, it's 12 times in 11 verses. I'm using the New American Standard. The throne is mentioned 11 times because everything around the throne is measured in its relation to the center throne. God's throne is not only the center of everything, it is what everything else is measured against. It's what everything else in the scene is focused on. And I want you to think, what does a throne imply about God? What does it imply about God that this this throne is being emphasized so frequently, so strongly in this scene? What do you think about when you think about a person sitting on a throne? Power, dominion, rule, authority. Listen, God's authority, how we approach the subject of authority. Is not just a matter of like theology, or I'm going to use a, word, a weird word, hermeneutics, how we interpret the Bible. Authority is at the center of who God is. The struggle we have with authority is ultimately a struggle with whether or not we really understand the person that God is. God is a person with absolute authority. And when God is pictured, most often he is pictured on a throne implying that he is one with ultimate authority. Again, authority is not just a matter of theology. It is who God is as a person. It is central. It is a central characteristic to who the person of God is. If we respect God, we respect his authority, as the figures in this section thought about that. There's many things that are taught about the authority of God in this. What does God's throne even look like? You know, God himself is radiating this this color, but around the throne is this emerald rainbow. With God's God's authority comes covenantal faithfulness. Think about the first time a rainbow is pictured in the Bible is in the book of Genesis after the flood. God creates a rainbow, which conveys that God will never again destroy mankind with a flood. That God exercises his authority and dominion to protect and to preserve. God exercises his authority through faithfulness to covenantal promises, to expectations he creates through his word to protect, to preserve, to protect life, and to preserve the integrity of promises that he makes to people, not to destroy, but to build up. And you notice that there's a lot coming out of this throne. So there's thunder and lightning and rumblings and tumblings. And just again, imagine John, I don't know if you've ever been like close to a lightning strike, which I'm assuming most of us have. Um, But when I've been close to a lightning strike, it literally shakes the ground or the building that I'm in. And lightning cannot be ignored. So although God's throne is beautiful by its appearance, which would definitely draw attention to it, just by matter of noise levels, the throne would draw your complete attention towards it, right? God's authority is not just a dry subject. It is a living and powerful thing. This lightning is coming out of the throne. And yet, if you look at verse 6, something before the, there's something before the throne. A sea of glass. How easy is it to create ripples in water and waves? And listen, lightning tends to be something that creates like a booming effect, a ripple effect out of it. And this is directly in front of the throne. So although God's authority... Is powerful and this lightning is powerful this glass sea would be flat there is serenity in the presence of God there is an impossible peace in the presence of God when we surrender ourselves to the authority of God it doesn't put our lives in chaos it doesn't disrupt our life the authority of God brings an impossible level of peace through power god's throne is clearly demonstrating power and yet in front of the throne right where you would expect to be waves and crashing water it is a flat surface what does flat water do to light that reflects off it oftentimes flat water if the sun is reflecting is harder to look at than the sun itself because usually what the sun does it doesn't just have like a little circle equal to the size of the sun But the entire surface of the water tends to become this great reflecting, bright beaming light that makes it difficult to even look in that direction, right? So this would only amplify the glory of God's throne. God's authority is living. It's powerful. It brings peace. But it should not be something that can be ignored. It should draw our attention and put us in awe. And then you have the beings who are surrounding this throne. And these beings obviously have glory. These living creatures look super unusual. I don't even know how to picture them in my mind very accurately. There's some things that are said about them that we'll talk about. These 24 elders are surrounding the throne, and they have crowns on their head. They're sitting on thrones. There's, there's an implied glory within how they're described. And yet, how focused are all of they on the center throne? Whatever glory these other beings have, that glory only highlights and emphasizes the greater glory of the one sitting on this central throne. So I want to think about these beings one by one. I don't mean one by one, but by category, the living creatures and then the elders and just some simple things I think we can draw from the text. Look at verse six and look at verse eight. There's something said twice about the living creatures, twice. And it's probably the most unusual thing. They are covered in eyes around and within. Again, I don't know what that looks like, but here's what I think it implies. They're able to take it all in. And do they seem like they're distracted? You know, there's implied enormity to this scene, especially in the chapter five, myriads and myriads of angels. I don't think this is like one little tiny room. You know, there's not much to look at. You know, it's just these few things. There's description and attention drawn to to specific things, but I imagine this is a glorious scene with a lot of beings who are present. These have eyes all around them. What are they entirely focused on? Of all beings, these are beings who can take it all in. And they are completely focused on the glory of the one on the center throne. These are very holy beings. These are very unusual beings. And yet, as we sung in verse 8, they proclaim holy, holy, holy. Uh, holy is a comparative word. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. But something can't be holy unless it's being compared to something else. Because for something to be holy, it is separate or distinct in its purpose, its value, its nature, It's as if to say that one thing is superior to another, therefore it becomes holy, right? Uh, God is uniquely in the Bible, holy, holy, holy. People in the Old Testament, like priests, they were called holy. Israel was called a holy nation because God himself is holy. Um, Sometimes the word holy is used twice to emphasize holiness in the Old Testament. Something would be most holy. Literally, it's holy, holy. For whatever it's worth, that's never said of people. That's only ever said of special objects or like the most holy place that the priest would enter just once a year, every year in the Old Testament. So objects used for service to God, places where God would dwell, where most holy people were never called most holy, not even the high priests. God is uniquely holy, holy, holy. He is transcendently holy, comparatively Here you have beings that certainly by appearance seem greater than men. And these beings who see one another, who see the angels who would have been surrounding God's throne, of everything they've seen comparatively, God is not just holy in comparison. He is not just most holy in comparison. God is transcendently and uniquely holy, holy, holy. And if you look at verse 10... Rather, verse 9, are these living creatures just robotically saying things that like, well, that's just God implanted this program into these robots and they're just reciting this? Notice it says they give glory, honor, and thanks. If your phone, like if you talk to Siri, and Siri on your phone said thank you or like Alexa, you know, would that mean anything to you if your phone said thank you to you? Would it mean anything? Because for something to just robotically say thanks means nothing. The fact that they worship and they give honor, glory, and thanks imply this is a will that God has put within them, that they are exercising. They are thanking God, not because they're robots, but because they willfully praise God. They willfully say these things of God. They recognize this about him. So they do this night and day, unceasingly. They are motivated to do do this by their own will, They see, they take in the glory of God. They are focused on the glory of God's throne. And as they do this, we move on to the living elders, verse 9 and 10. These elders who also look glorious in their appearance, they have some level of authority as they have crowns and they're seated on thrones. And in verse 10, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and cast their crowns before him. The idea of falling down isn't that they just like gently put their knees on the ground. It really is the idea of falling, prostrating in the presence of God. And they cast their crowns. Again, this, isn't, this, this word isn't saying that they gently put it beside them or kind of like gently put it in front of them. It's as if they collapse and on the way down, they hurl their thrones at the feet of the one who is sitting on the throne. I hear noise here. That as they fall down and you hear the sound of their garments or whatever, their knees falling on the ground, you also hear the slam of their crowns bouncing off the ground towards the center throne. Whatever glory these beings possess, all of it, whether that be authority, power, anything, everything is used to give greater glory to the one who is seated on the center throne. Just a principle before we go to chapter 5 as we take in this scene, as we try to see it in its glory, does your life and does my life reflect the principles that we see in this scene? Is the throne of God at the center of your life? And I want to think about this more practically. You know, again, everything in the scene is drawing attention to the glory, the power, the beauty of God's throne. Do your words draw attention to the glory of and the beauty of God's authority? Do your marriages, does my marriage, does your marriage point people to the glory and the beauty of God's authority? Does the way we treat our government and people in power and in authority draw attention to the power and the beauty and the reality of God's throne? Does our relationship to our children, our parents, our behavior at work, our interactions with our coworkers or our bosses at work, our relationship with each other in Christ as we studied this morning in our Bible study, Do these things show the glory, point people to the surpassing glory and beauty of God's authority? Those who are close to God, everything they are is a representation of the glory and the beauty of God's throne. Everything that they are. Chapter five. So it's still the same scene, as Jim said during the Lord's Supper talk. Um, this is still the same scene and the lamb enters the scene uh, with an eruption of praise that takes three phases from there. Interesting thing about these scenes though is the one on the throne says nothing the whole time. So God has not said anything. He doesn't say anything in chapter five either. Uh, the lamb also says nothing. So chapter four, chapter five, the only people who are talking are others around God and the lamb talking about them. And that's what we'll continue to see in chapter five. Uh, I'm going to start with verses one through um, seven, and then we'll read eight through the end of the chapter after talking about how the lamb is introduced here. Chapter five, one through seven. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, and this would be more like a scroll. Uh, So don't think about a book like what I have here, but rather a scroll that would have been rolled up and then we'll read it being sealed. A book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and, and it's seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne So John, as now a participant in the scene, and by the way, this is the only time when someone actually talks to John and when he has, like, a role in the scene. He sees a scroll in God's hand, and I almost imagine it's as if in the scene, all this is happening, and again, this is just how I picture it, that God, like, leans forward, and John notices that God on his throne has this sealed scroll in his hand. And then this strong angel, and by the way, When something in the book of Revelation is said to be loud, as he loudly asks this question, I picture, uh, you know, like the train horn that we have go by, louder than that. Like something that it overwhelms. You know, nothing else can be heard once this sound is happening. So like train horn goes off. Really, it's the only thing you can hear. So he loudly asks the question, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, imagine silence, which in the book of Revelation in general, silence is strange and is a tool to highlight something or bring attention to something. I imagine silence. There's been all of this noise. God's throne has been making noise. The elders, the living creatures, everything's been making noise. The sound of this angel proclaiming this, that's created a great deal of noise. As his voice echoes in what I imagine is a great distance as the scene progresses, Silence. The angels are not worthy. The four living creatures, they are not worthy. Gabriel, Michael, these angels, Gabriel and Michael, the angels, they are not worthy. No living person who now is passed on and you know with the Lord in some way, Moses, Elijah, whatever, they are not worthy. So no one's worthy. How did John react to this? And isn't it an interesting that this made him weep and not just sniffle a bit you know i picture a full-on ugly cry why was john a part of the scene and what was it that made his role critical john cared about the revealed word of god that there would be something that was written by god that was sealed that could not be opened, known or understood did that matter to john To John, the revealed word of God mattered immensely. And it gives us an idea of the importance of this scene, how much it mattered to God. How valuable is the revealed word of God to you? As he's weeping loudly, and I imagine, again, time is passing. There's been enough time to kind of take in, okay, nobody's worthy, we're kind of at a standstill here. And one of the elders, so not the strong angel now, I imagine loud excitement, so not just said like, you know, oh stop weeping, look, the lamb from the tribe of Judah. I imagine this is said again, loudly, exuberantly, excitedly. I'm not gonna try to give a justice to what I imagine this would have sounded like, but again, exuberance. You know, the, the lion from the tribe of Judah, from the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. So you imagine now John with tears still filling his eyes with excitement and anticipation is expecting to see a lion, this powerful, dominant animal. And imagine with David, David was a warrior. So you're, again, you're imagining power, something fitting for one who has overcome with authority and has waged war, and yet he looks, he turns, he sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, a lamb who is standing as if it's slain. And again, this is just me filling in some gaps that aren't explicitly said in the text. But in my mind, I picture this like he looks over and still there's silence. And John takes in that there's this lamb standing. I imagine it's, it's head hunched over, blood dripping on the floor. There was a floor. It seems like there was a floor. And it just slowly stepping up to the throne its head limping, I imagine even blood coming out of its mouth, it gasping, again, it's standing as if slain. And he takes the scroll, which I again imagine with his mouth, out of the hand of God. And as John is captivated by this, he hears a sound. Because as the scroll is taken, the sound of falling, and it's not just the elders, but... In chapter 4, the living creatures did not prostrate. Let's finish the chapter in verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Don't miss there that the prayers of the saints are participating in this. Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And purchased for God with your blood, men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads. And that would be like a large number in the Greek language, 10,000, myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, describing something innumerable, saying with a loud voice, voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them i heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and i imagine this is the loudest most enthusiastic amen John had ever heard. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Their third time falling down. So there is a threefold meaning just three-phase eruption of praise. So again, we just need to take this in. I think just really understand what's happening here. So in verse 8, as this lamb takes the book, says nothing, he just takes it. Suddenly, he hears the four creatures and the elders falling down. Again, not just a neat bowing, but falling before the lamb. And they proclaim his worthiness. Something to consider about this is what they are praising the lamb for. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? How did the older brother think about the father celebrating his younger brother's return? These beings, who are more glorious in appearance than we are, who are greater in power, who, I don't see them having sinned like the devil and being reserved for judgment. These are righteous, good beings who love God and yet... They are praising God for exalting into the highest position the most unworthy part of his creation. The most unworthy part of his creation. There is no covetousness in heaven. And based on this example, I think it's fair to say, and to say strongly, covetousness is the enemy of worship. Covetousness is the enemy of seeing God's worthiness, of being able to see God's glory and its true essence. In their worship, there is a complete absence of jealousy, covetousness, envy. There is not God. How could you do this for them when what they've done against you has blasphemed you, blasphemed you, denounced you, defiled your name? How could you give them What should have been given to us? There is a complete absence of covetousness in the heavenly places with those who are before the throne of God. They celebrate the fact that God gives his greatest grace to those who are least worthy to receive it. And they understand it, and they understand it well. That Jesus, who is a representation of the glory of who God is, that he died and purchased for God with his blood, through his suffering, through being treated by these people with the uttermost shame and reproach, he's redeemed them to be a kingdom, priests to God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I want you to picture this in slow motion. As this is being said, and I imagine still echoing into the distance, there's a sound. And I don't know if it's the sound of clothing or just people, angels, angelic beings coming forth innumerable and you imagine that it's just overwhelming as john looks around in the scene and what he sees is ten thousands upon ten thousands and thousands upon thousands this shocking scene of innumerable angels loudly proclaiming that the lamb is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing those are seven things and these beings are acknowledging that the lamb is worthy to receive these things. I don't know if you've ever lost something that was given back to you, uh, especially if like, you had just dropped it or left it somewhere and someone gave it back to you. But I've had people with things like my wallet, they'll say, hey, does this belong to you? As in like, I think this is yours, right? To say that Jesus is worthy is to say, this is what belongs to him. Something that we lose in an earthly plane Jesus is worthy to receive back. What seems to be lost, Jesus is worthy of power. He's not just worthy to have it, he is worthy to receive it. He's not just worthy to have wisdom, he's worthy to receive wisdom. Not just worthy to have might, receive might, honor, glory, dominion. And again, dominion not just as an idea, that he's worthy to just have dominion. He is worthy to receive dominion through people submitting, submitting riches, submitting power, submitting wisdom, giving him honor, giving him glory, giving him dominion. He is worthy of this and worthy of it forever and ever. And again, the scene increases as this is echoing in the distance. Verse 13, every created thing. You know, this is a fulfillment of the Psalms. Uh, The song Hallelujah Praise Jehovah, which I think is number two, what we're going to be singing uh, comes from the Psalms where David would write that all creation, young, young men, young women, older men, older women, all creation, sun and moon and stars, that everything should praise the Lord. I think David or whatever psalmist would have written these final psalms in the book of Psalms. That's near the end of the book of Psalms, 148, 150. Uh, they understood God is worthy to receive these things, that all creation creation. Should praise the Lord. Here in Revelation 5, we don't see that all creation should praise the Lord. We see that all creation does praise the Lord. What the psalmists were jealous for God to receive in Revelation 5, we see that that is exactly what he is worthy to receive and does receive. Again, I don't know what this would have looked like. You know, every created being in the heavenly plane, the earthly plane, the, if I can call it this Hadean plane the, the dead plane on the earth, under the earth, in the scene just everything that's created to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and again the, the loudness of this with the four living creatures notice they kept saying amen so I imagine that they're just saying amen, amen, amen the elders once again fall down so it's like they're getting up just to fall down all over again I want you to imagine, how would this experience impact John? If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. seems like John was exiled to a lonely place as like a a punishment for his faith. He's on the island called Patmos. He's suffering for his faith, but I want you to imagine after seeing something like this, how do you think that would have put into perspective his earthly circumstances, kind of when he was back in his earthly body or whatever? Do you think that he would have thought about life's difficulties in the same way? Do you think he would have thought about persecution in the same way? Do you think he would have thought about earthly losses and sacrifices or tragedies in the same way after experiencing a vision like this? Or you just think about his motivation to praise God. How much more motivated do you believe he would have been? And his hope to be with God, to be where God is, to give what belongs to him, Do you think this would have changed John's motivation and sense of hope? And listen, Revelation 4 and 5 isn't written just so that we'd look at that and be like, oh, that must have been nice, or that's really cool that that was being done in that time, I guess. It's an invitation to see what John saw and to be impacted as John was, if we take it in. If we understand the nature of what it is that we saw here ourselves. And so, lastly, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. There's an exhortation I want to leave with you in Hebrews 13. We're going to start in verse 12, actually. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus, also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Which that would be like going outside the gates, like the difficult place, the unsafe place. That's where the hard people are. That's where the hard work is. It's the vulnerable place where he died. We're told to go out to him in verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw his vision of God in the temple, which was not anywhere near as amazing as this one is, do you remember what he said? He said, woe is me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Do you know why he said that? because he saw the kind of praise being given to God. And I think that put into perspective how little Isaiah saw God's worthiness to be praised. The reality of Revelation 4 and 5, it's so convicting and not in a bad way, in a very encouraging way. God is worthy of so much more praise than I'm motivated to give. And shame on me that I'm so unmotivated to give God praise. I remember years ago, I was out to eat at lunch with someone, and I asked if we could say a prayer of thanks for the food, and one of the people I was with, to say they got upset might not be fair, but they kind of indignantly asked, do we have to give thanks for our food? Are we doing something wrong if we don't? I've thought a lot about that since then. I never give God thanks because I have to. I give God thanks because I want to. And for God to stoop so low that he would give me food when I don't deserve it. I see examples of thanks being given before a meal, but I give God thanks because I can't imagine not doing so. Because he is worthy of so much more than me finishing my day ritualistically saying, thank you, God. Or before I eat, just saying some common blessing for the food. God is worthy of more praise than I could possibly give him. And that, to me, it motivates me. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, for I've seen the Lord of hosts. To truly see God is to be deeply humbled and emboldened. God is worthy of more than what we see in this existence being given for him. And that should cultivate within us an indignant jealousy to give him what rightfully belongs to him, what's been rightfully won by the blood of Jesus, our Lord. May God help us find greater joy in the glory of who he is and what he's done. May that motivate us and embolden us. If you're here this morning and you see your need either to put on Christ in salvation, to repent of your life of sin, in blaspheming the name of God by not surrendering to him, you can be made right with God today, any day, but I appeal to you to not delay, to repent, to put on Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, to join this heavenly chorus. If there's anything else that needs to be done for your faith and relationship with God, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our imitation song.